thank you to the Commonwealth Club for giving us the platform to have this very important conversation. I'll introduce our panelists today. We have Dion Lim, who's an award-winning TV news anchor and reporter at ABC7 KGO-TV. She's also the author of Make Your Moment, the Savvy Woman's Communication Playbook to Getting the Success You Want. We also have Judge Julie Tang, who is retired from the San Francisco Superior Court, and she's also co-chair of Comfort Women Justice Coalition. And then finally, but not least, we have Sin Wang, who's the CFO of Wang Insurance and is also a state political director at the United Democratic Club and also former United States diplomat and assistant city attorney. Welcome, everyone, to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. I'll start by reading from the FBI's intelligence report that they had just released earlier, uh, uh, just a few weeks ago. Here's a quote. The FBI assesses hate crime in- incidents against Asian Americans likely will surge across the United States due to the spread of coronavirus disease, endangering Asian American communities. The FBI makes this assessment based on the assumption that a portion of the U.S. public will associate COVID-19 with China and Asian American populations. The intelligence report goes on to cite a couple incidents that they've already witnessed. Recently, a two-year-old and a six-year-old were stabbed at a Texas Sam's Club because of the alleged perpetrator's thought. He told police that the, the family was Chinese and spreading the disease. A 44-year-old man was charged with aggravated harassment after allegedly harassing and pushing a 47-year-old Asian man in Queens who was walking with his son to a bus stop. It's a horrible way to open up a program. Uh, Unfortunately, though, these are true facts, and the FBI's intelligence report backs up a lot of what we're seeing on social media, a lot that's been reported with local news, And so let's check in with each of you. What impacts are you seeing, uh, having, hearing, and sharing as far as uh, your community, your family, your friends? Uh, Sin. Sure. Um, First of all, yes, we've seen a very alarming surge of anti-Asian racism over the last few months. Uh, I think a lot of, a great deal of it has been inflamed by the Trump administration and their use of very intentional racist language around it. On a personal level, I think I've been very, very lucky because I live in San Francisco. We've had a very responsive community and one that's incredibly inclusive. And I think we've seen great leadership from our mayor and the administration here. Um, That said, I I know that a lot of my friends and family are feeling some fear and trepidation about going out, being... Um, blamed and scapegoated for this. Um, I know that only a few days ago, for instance, our president was tweeting that Speaker Pelosi is trying to pack everyone into Chinatown, uh, referring to her trip to San Francisco Chinatown three weeks before shelter in place uh, was uh, issued. And he tried to conflate that with China at large. He said, she did that after I closed the border to China. So we're looking at leadership from the top down, trying to conflate the country of China with Chinese American communities in the U.S. And so I think that's something that all of us um, are really sensitive to and trying to be really careful around and trying to fight that perpetual foreigner notion that we we continue to uh, sometimes uh, face. And this is something that 
has been brewing underneath the surface for a very long time, way before coronavirus. And just through reporting the past couple of months, I was so frustrated at the number of crimes against Asians, Asian Americans being targeted because of cultural reasons or because of their, they're not at a point where they want to speak out when a crime happens. These criminals think it's okay. So that compounded on top of all of the coronavirus accusations about how it started in Wuhan or how we are dirty. It just got worse from there. So what I'm seeing is not only those major stories that hit the news cycle, but also smaller anecdotal examples. And that's what we're seeing from online hate reporting centers that have been set up across the country. The one that started here in the Bay Area, they're getting more than 100 reports of hate incidents, whether it be microaggressions or something as seemingly simple as calling someone a slur on the street. More than 100 of these incidents a day across the country. And that is just the small fraction of people who know about the websites and who are reporting. So it's, uh, I almost feel like I have PTSD because it is all around us. It's gotten to such a fever pitch. You know, it's um, interesting that Sai mentioned that she's very lucky to be living in San Francisco. I do too. But I think we're going to be really shocked when we see a report that has been uh, compiling data on all the incidents of racism across the nation that rated San Francisco as the highest incident of racial violence among cities like New York and, and Boston and, 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 and all the other big cities. We sustained the highest number of racial incidents. And um, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing that report and more information coming out of it is compiled by Chinese for Affirmative Action in conjunction with Russell Zhang from the San Francisco State University. But um, Ms. Um, uh, Michelle, you um, asked a good question as to how racism has impact, impacted each and every one of us. I just want to say that as a first-generation American from Hong Kong, China, I came to this country more than 50 years ago when my family emigrated here. I am a typical first-generation Chinese-American who knows the Chinese history and culture and also knows U.S. culture and history. I also don't confine my news sources to the elitist mainstream media. I read information from Chinese-American news sources, Tao, World Journal, as well as those from China and Asia. And as a judge, I know I needed to know both sides of the story in order order to make a good judgment. As Chinese Americans, I think we have a special understanding of the delicate and dynamic political relationship between the United States and China that deserves to be heard. And the American public needs to recognize our view of China is not China's view, but a Chinese American view. Now, I know many people, including many Chinese Americans, who feel uncomfortable to talk about a connection between anti-Chinese racism in America and U.S.-China relations. But as uncomfortable as it may seem, it is an inconvenient truth that when China is being attacked by the U.S. and the media or by politicians, Chinese Americans will be impacted. And the many instances of violence and abuse and bullying of Asian children are the direct result of Trump calling the virus Chinese virus and a U.S. war with China. In another word, the underpinning of much of those resentment towards Chinese Americans comes from the fact that we are at war with China. It's a hybrid war, info war and economic war that may move to something more serious than that. And that is why many Chinese Americans now are joining the peace movements to urge peace and not war. Thank you, Judge. 
I want to stay on that. The uh, I, I think that we feel very strongly about um, leaders and and what they say and and that it does actually matter. You know, back in March during press briefings, the president of the United States had referred to COVID nineteen as the Chinese virus, already putting a face to this virus that kills all of any of us, really, doesn't matter if you're Chinese or not. And he goes on to defend calling it the Chinese virus because he says, well, it originated from China's, therefore it's a Chinese virus without really recognizing the danger in that. Um, I'll, 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 I'll say this. I mean, a couple of days later, he does tweet out to the Asian American community and, and the communities at large. And I'll, I'll read the tweet because I love reading the president's tweets. <laughs> I want to pick up on that, oh, Michelle. What's I that? Do. I want to pick up on that because, um, you know, it hasn't stopped. Before. Yeah, let me let me read the tweet first, Judge, yeah. because I, I do want to I, I want to give um, the president that. But he tweets out that it's very important we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. They are amazing people, and the spreading of the virus is not their fault in any way, shape, or form. They are working closely with us to get rid of it. We will prevail together in all caps. And so the, the question is really, um, you know, your feelings, your thoughts about leadership and how they've referred to the virus itself and then the walk back and, and you know, talking about it in this way. Is it enough or what do you feel about it? And not to it's not a partisan question. It really is just kind of how you feel about it. So we'll start with Judge Julie and then go well, Unfortunately, you know, once you started the water, you know, the spigot, it, it doesn't get turned off that easily. Like Ma- Ma- Michael Pompeo refused to have a joint statement at the G7 conference, a joint statement that would absolutely assure the world, you know, the support that the leaders are giving it uh, to fight the pandemic. But he refused to, to, to enter a joint statement unless that joint statement has to work Wuhan virus. I think I, I just can't imagine how low you can get. And then the other day, I don't know if anybody saw uh, Bill Maher. He's a, a, a sort of like a, a comedian, political comedian from HBO. And he has this video that talked about the Chinese virus and why we should keep the name Chinese virus. And he argued that because traditionally all these other countries have that where, you know, the um, epidemic or a virus um, was first identified usually has, has a name attached to it. But I, I saw a debunking of that statement by a guy called Nathan Rich, who is a very interesting character. He is an expat in, in China, and he produced these very interesting um, videos that debunk a lot of things that American politicians and, and, and uh, press people are saying. He's saying that that is absolutely not true, and I agree with him. The Spanish flu, okay, 1918, didn't come from Spain or originate from Spain or identified first in Spain. It was identified in Kansas City. So it should be called Kansas American flu, the H1N1 flu. That is an American, also started in America, identified in America. It's not called a US flu, it's called H1N1. And let's talk about the AIDS epidemic. AIDS epidemic also was identified first in the United States. And it's called the AIDS epidemic, rightly so, and not the US epidemic. And there are a lot of other things too, like, um, for example, MERS, you know, started in Arabia, Netherlands, so we can call it Arabian Netherlands flu, but the Hong Kong flu 
was started when Hong Kong was under British rule, was a colony of Hong Kong, of Britain. So it should be called Britain flu. The bird flu started in Italy. So it should be called the Italian flu and so forth and so forth. I mean, we just got to follow the WHO guidelines and not stigmatize countries or people when a pandemic arises. Because it's really not clear the origin of it. And even with this virus, scientists are still working very hard to find the cause and also where it originates from. Uh, it is identified first in China, there's no question. But there may be another story to it. So um, we just got to be really careful about the people it may hurt, the, uh, the community of people that may stigmatize. And, and the end result is what we're seeing right now, a lot of anti-Asian uh, racism going on. Sen? Yeah, um, I, I alluded to this earlier. I think the Trump administration's uh, re- refer- reference to COVID-19 as the Chinese virus, as the Wuhan coronavirus, as Kung flu, uh, it's intentional. It's th- The point of it is to scapegoat a particular community and to reduce blame for himself. He wants to distract us from his administration's failures to prepare for to mitigate and to address this pandemic. This is from the same president who in January said the virus was quote unquote, totally under control, was having campaign rallies with thousands of people in February. And who yesterday said that sunshine and injecting disinfectants could potentially kill the virus. But, uh, you know, (laughs) that aside, this scapegoating is um, a playbook we've seen before. We saw the same thing after 9-11 when the Bush administration and the media's portrayal of Muslims as terrorists redirected the public's anger at a vulnerable vulnerable minority rather than their own foreign policy. And um, I think we have to be really vigilant and we have to come together as a community uh, so that we can point out this type of uh, scapegoating, and we can make sure it's not normalized. I like what you said about coming together as a community. It's been interesting over the course of the past few months, coming from a mainstream media perspective, that here we have a really unique position because our job is not to traditionally give our viewpoints, right? And we cannot be biased in saying what president we agree with president trump or we disagree with it however we can present the facts like what judge julie had just mentioned all of these other instances but i also think we speak of leadership coming from the top i think we also have to look within our own organizations of leadership and have them because i have always said being a tv news anchor that it doesn't matter if you have a diverse cast on television. I mean, yes, it does, because I'm a member of the Asian American Journalists Association and have been for many years, but it's the people at the top, the people who are making the decisions, who are oftentimes not of diverse background. But fortunately, what we've been so, I guess, you know, lucky to have is a staff and a management team who, when we approached and said, let's do a town hall and have a discussion, because a two-minute story on what the president says is just two minutes. But if you can dedicate an entire hour town hall discussion with 16 panelists of different backgrounds, then you are more better positioned to make uh, a case for why saying something like this is wrong. So I think our, our approach has got to be a little bit different nowadays um, if we need to get our, our message out to the public. I completely agree. And I think when a journalist followed up to President Trump and said, is it dangerous for you to call COVID-19 
the Chinese virus. He said, no, Asian Americans would probably agree with me. I think we can all we can all stand here today and say we do not agree. It stokes discrimination. It places our lives at risk. Michelle, you outlined a couple instances of violent attacks against Asian Americans since this all began. I was doing a little bit of research and found over 1,500 um, reports of anti-Asian hate incidents since mid-March. Uh, Al Jazeera found more than 10,000 posts on Twitter, including just the term Kung Flu, and there are more than 110 million views of posts tagged Chinese coronavirus on TikTok. I think, uh, so I think this language matters. It has consequences, and, and, and it places our lives and safety at risk. I think Dion's um, comment about getting together and, and really um, as a collective voice resonates with me. I think coalition building is a survival mechanism for minority communities. Uh, the Asian American Association of Journalists were the first one actually to issue a letter of rebuke to the president, demanding that he stop using those words and stick to the who's next designation of COVID-19. Now, the letter was signed by many different journalist associations that include the LGBTQ Association, Women's Association, African-American, Jewish, Latino community. And I wanted to thank all those journalists. I also found information sources from minority um, press tell a very a much more honest story in some ways about the current epidemic situation. I am now much more worried of mainstream media headline articles that do not cite the source of the information. New York Times, Washington Post are serious offenders when it comes to quoting anonymous sources or someone who does not want to be identified or naming six unidentified intelligence officers close. I'm just shocked that these kind of news that do not have a reliable source get so much, get such attention as headlines and front page. As a judge, I'm usually suspicious of information that does not have credible and reliable sources because it gives too much room for misquotes and exaggerations that mar the truth. So I, I just want to thank the uh, journalists, Asian American Journal Associations, for spearheading that um, uh, that debate about you know uh, Chinese virus and really present it to uh, America and make it a um, a mainstream uh, understanding of what how that and how that term affects Chinese yeah. Americans. I, I love what That's you true. said, uh, Judge Julie. You talked about coalition building. I know you yourself, you know, during the Briggs Initiative, for example, uh, being an activist, standing side by side in support of LGBTQ uh, educators during a time in which there was a bill proposed to ban LGBTQ educators. I think that's like a perfect way to talk about how we can come together to stop something like racism, which, uh, you know, has been if we want to talk about a plague or a pandemic, I mean, it's been an issue in the United States history since its formation. Um, so we'll, we'll start with Dion this time and kind of talking about in your thoughts and what ways, you know, the importance of coalition building and reaching across the aisle and talking to other communities, you know, and, and to really be effective to dismantle, you know, racism in this country. Yeah. Listen, it's everything. And I don't even think you need to put a label of coalition building on it. I think you could even call it, uh, you know, look at what you see on social media, for example. And it sounds so silly, these influencers, but we've seen a rise in them right now. I can name three off the bat, Asians Never Die, Jackfruit, and, um, you know, Asian Hustle Network. They're all based in the Bay Area. They have silly names, right? But 
they have an important message. Before this, they, they were all about uh, s- sending silly memes um, about you know Asian foods or entertainment, things like that. But now they've really embraced the fact that they have an audience, a captive audience that's plugged in and interested in fighting against this racism. So in a way, now that everything is traveling at the speed of light on the internet, we have the ability more so than ever to kind of get on board. And all it takes sometimes is a like, right? Something as tiny and these micro actions um, that together form a hundred million likes on a certain post and gets a story out. I remember, and you probably remember this too, because this went global, the story of the can collector in San Francisco's Bayview, Mm -hmm. where he was caught on camera, humiliated, beaten, and called racial slurs. And for me to break that story... I knew why it was the secret sauce. That was the catalyst to get the conversation going. Because up until then, people who were in the field, who I wanted to interview about this subject, very reticent, very unlikely to talk. It was almost like twisting someone's arm and they still would not do it. I would always joke to my photographer that going to Chinatown was impossible because I could never get somebody to comment on a story out of fear or just out of a problem with the language barrier. But ever since that video came out, and there can be people who say the video was just a low blow to get clicks and likes. You know what? It got people's attention. That's all I care about at this point because it raised the story to a level where we saw celebrities, where we saw people around the world sharing it at the speed of light that I mentioned. And I think to in in a way that's coalition building as well. It may not be a formal group, it may not be weekly meetings, monthly conferences, but in a way uh, that sparked something online and with a whole new demographic of young people. So I think that's a very effective tool that we've been using. That is so refreshing uh, hearing what Dion is saying. I mean, it gives me a real new perspective, <laughs> a whole new perspective, very inspiring perspective, how we can reach um, the, the, the people now, the new generation. Because in, in the days that I come from in the 70s, uh, that's what we talk about, coalition work. Um, and I recall um, we actually use that word a lot and it's a galvanizing word. But maybe right now we should look at different words now, new, new, new way of um, approaching this, the same problems that are the, the coalition work that uh, we, uh, with Chinese Ameri- through Chinese American Democratic Club had with the LGBT community was really amazing. Because in those days, um, we worked with um, the late Harvey Milk, Harry Britt, Bob Ross of the Bay Area Reporter, Roberta Ochtenberg, and many other trailblazers of the gay lesbian community. Like back then, the gay Asian lines was something very new, but it was established through the Chinese American Democratic Credit Club, which has incidentally two members here on this panel, Sai and myself. And in the 70s, CADC had a very strong coalition political structure uh, with the gay movement and when the gay movement was just about to take off. And I think that back then it was like little groups, you know, clustering and, and building up and building eventually getting to a bigger, bigger group. But now we have the platforms that Dion talked about. And so uh, we, are, we have new challenges to, to deal with the same problem. And I think that we look forward to continue to promote those same kind of issues. Um, but um, looking at different ways to do that. By the way, um, Chinese American Democratic Club is helping to promote uh, a Facebook wearing of a mask program. So if, if you're interested, go to sfcadc.org to get a filter to add to your Facebook profile as a way of disseminating 
um, and uh, uh, the fight against uh, Asian uh, uh, prejudice against Asians. What it says is that fight the virus, um, but not Asians. Very simple message, and that is the social media uh, way of uh, reaching out to the public. Did you want anything to? Did you want to add anything, Sun? Yeah, first of all, really want to lift up Judge Tang and your leadership and pointing out, too, just how involved in coalition building and how much work we've done as an Asian American community uh, with others for decades and decades in both the LGBT movement and the civil rights movement. I think a lot of that is unseen and not really acknowledged um, by folks in today's age. Um, obviously, these issues that COVID-19 has exposed are very intersectional. It's shown a light on all the social fissures we have and the holes in our social safety net. And who's most vulnerable? It's not an equal opportunity virus. We're talking about undocumented folks, small business owners, often are immigrants, people who don't have access to healthcare, job insecurity. Our black community is contracting and dying from it at much higher rates uh, than anybody else in this country. So as far as what we can do about in coalition building, we all need to be anti-racist allies. We have to speak and act as anti-racist. We have to educate ourselves about the history of racism in the U.S. Um, and we have to intervene when we're seeing incidents of, of, of bias and hate and get involved with organizations like Judge Tang was saying, uh, the Chinese American Democratic Club is a, good, is a great one um, to do some of this work. Let's talk about identity. You know, growing up as an Asian American person myself, I mean, my mom would always tell me as a, as a immigrant to this country to stay out of trouble. Don't, you know, cause any trouble and, and be as quiet as possible. Fly under the radar. You'll be much more successful flying under the radar. And so during this time though, you know, you, you have folks like the organizations that Dion had listed. Um, Asians Never Die, uh, Asian Hustle Network, um, it, you know, who are speaking up and creating this really big social media presence. But also when we talk about social media presence, there is a lot of bullying. There's a lot of digs you're going to take. And so I'd love to ask you, you know, in, in how you choose to be out there and then be visible and then have a voice and find your purpose during this pandemic as an Asian American person. We'll start with Dion. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Michelle, I feel like so many people can relate during this time. And um, I remember, and I speak about it in my book, that same thing. My dad was a chemist and he always said, work hard. That is the pathway to success. It's the only way for success and keep your nose clean and your head down. And that is how you are going to get your message across. You don't need a message, but you know, I think the, the passion that I felt after covering all of these stories that were against the Asian American community of discrimination and xenophobia, I realized that I'm uniquely positioned to have that platform. And if I didn't use my voice in some way, that the stories were going to get lost because nobody else was pitching them as stories to run for the newscast in certain days. They would just fly under the radar. So it was funny, after the can collector story in the Bayview, my mother sent me an email saying that she wanted me to stop sharing because I have a large social media presence myself. And she said, why do you do these things? Not necessary. It makes us look bad. And I tried to explain to her, no, actually, the more we're able to share, 
the more we're able to position ourselves as having a voice and showing people that we're not afraid and to open people's eyes. If I had a dollar for every time someone would email me after a story and say, you manufactured all of this. Uh, you, you hate Donald Trump and just the hate, the vitriol, you'd be surprised. It's, it's really hard to, to overcome, but I think now more than ever, we have a little bit of wiggle room, right? And maybe not on super controversial subjects, like I'm not going to comment on abortion um, in the middle of the newscast, but this is something timely. And this is something that impacts me. I have a unique perspective. And if I want to interject a little bit about what I've been through and how I was called a chink growing up and how much I wanted to be white and how I feared uh, going to school uh, every day, you know, I, I think that makes a more powerful avenue to tell someone else's story because they can relate. They can have that baseline of knowing they're not alone. And that's half the battle, isn't it? To get the stories out there is knowing that there are people all around you in your community going through the same thing. Deanna, I love that you do that work and highlight those stories. And I think it it's a testament to how important representation is um, in every field. And yes, many of us grew up with the message and with the cultural norms to keep your head down. But again, looking at what's happening around us, we really can't afford to be silent right now. Um, our community is under threat. So are many other vulnerable communities. Um, and now is the time to speak up. This is actually reminding me of the whole kind of brouhaha around the op-ed for Washington Post that Jeff Yang wrote. Uh, he had he had said something along the lines of like, we're as Asian Americans right now, we have to embrace and show how American we are and we have to wear more red, white, and blue and like eat burgers. <laughs> now I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> um, but he said something like we have to show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans. And there was a lot of backlash to that because in essence, a lot of folks uh, from our community were saying, why is he saying the onus is on us to prove that we're American right now? Why do we have a special responsibility to disprove that we're foreigners? Um, and so I think that's a really important and timely conversation and that this is the time for us to speak up, show who we are, uh, and not by show, not by wearing red, white, white, and blue, but doing what we do every day. Um we're active parts of our communities, we're business owners, we're professionals in every sector. And people see that by us just living our authentic lives and being part of the fabric of our communities. I, I like the word that um, that you used, that we know who we are. Because as Chinese Americans, we're often challenged um, that, um, uh, are you American enough? Um, or are you trying to defend China because you're Chinese? I think we have to be... Um, uh, forthright about, you know, fundamentally who we are. Uh, in my case, I love both countries, but both countries are my two parents. China is my biological parent. It's my birthplace. United States is my adopted parent. Under the law, and I know my law because I did family law as a judge for a while. My adopted parents are my legal parents, the only parents that I will have under the law. Let's say my biological parents found me and turned out that they're billionaires. I can't even inherit any of their money. And likewise, my legal parents can't disclaim me because in the eyes of the law, I am the legal child. So I, when people say, go back to China, I would just tell them that I can't because my legal parents are here. America is my legal parent. And I think it is important to 
really cut that very clearly that we are Chinese Americans. Uh, we can go down the street and say that um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an American, so don't beat me up. Nobody's going to pay any attention to that because you look Chinese. Now, um, Caucasian Americans, second generation, they blend in. They're part of the mainstream. But if you're seventh generation Chinese, you're still a foreigner. You still look like a foreigner. So I think what we need to do is to really learn our cultural heritage, learn what's at stake, learn what's happening in China, learn about what this U.S.-China war is doing, how it's affecting us, and we fight. We fight for our rights, and we fight for what is important and what is just. And um, that's all I want to say. I also want to also mention that in my um, piece work um, on the issues of rape of Nanjing and comfort women, you know, the late Iris Chang, who wrote the book called The Rape of Nanjing, which um, really changed the um, dynamics of how people look at World War II in China and, um, and the Japanese invasion. She talked about the power of one. And it is really important, no matter where we are, who we are, if you want to do something, you can do it. And I think we have a really good example here with Michelle. She wanted to be... Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, anchor, you know, and she wanted to have her own show. She got her own show, you know, and I'm sure, Michelle, it was not easy for you to prove and, <laughs> and to convince people that you could do it. I bet you most people would just shake their heads when you said, I'm going to do my own show, right? Like Oprah, you know, who would believe that she would be so famous? So it's the power of one. So if you believe in it, you know who you are, you just got to do it. And mainly it's important to, you know, live without principles and do what's right and what's just and not to harm anybody. Judge Julie, uh, thank you for that. And uh, I feel very honored that it came from you. Um, I'll, t- I'll say this, that the one moment, the first time that we get, we can all sit around and have dim sum together. I'll tell you the story of how there's the show called the Michelle Miao Show. You're A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> I want to remind the audience, if you're joining us on the Commonwealth Club's live YouTube uh, uh show (laughs) uh we'll take your questions and uh, we're gonna we're gonna open it up to questions we want you engaged share your comments share your questions um to our panelists you know we talk about safety right like what does that mean when you're trying to stay alive during a pandemic but you're also combating racism um, and that's very, very targeted. I mean, you could follow the guidelines of the, of public health directors, uh, but even in the United States, the direction to have facial coverings have come after 40,000 plus people have died, over 800,000 people have, uh, have been infected and sick. And, and it could be a difference in opinion because culturally, if you look at other countries, the facial coverings have, have come earlier. Um, so it's, it's how you interpret, you know, how you're going to stay safe. But would love to hear from each of you, like safety and some recommendations of what that actually means. And in, even when you hear people, you know, sharing thoughts or comments or doing things online, even, you know, these comments, like how would, how would you respond to that? Um, one of the things I always tell people is I think n- sometimes not responding is okay, but uh, would love to hear from all three of you. We'll start with uh, Judge Julie. Yes, yeah, safety is a real important thing and a, a real primary concern, I think, for everybody, not just only for your um, health, safety from from the virus itself, 
but as Asian Americans, safety from assault and and things of things of that nature. I've seen enough police reports in my life to know that once you're a victim, no one can compensate you. Uh, most of the victims uh, uh, don't get uh, you know the, the apologies or the reparations that they deserve, and most of them uh, feel that justice is, de- is denied to them because once you're victimized, it stays there. But I think there's a lot of help around. And I, I, I watch this um, uh, channel called uh, Hollaback, you know, you, where you learn how to defend yourself, how to understand, how to avoid these issues, to either deflect or um, uh, 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 do whatever you need under the circumstances. They have all the expertise, expert advices. I would say go to those uh, blogs and, and channels and, and learn and really educate yourself. But mainly, I think that is that internally, I think we have to feel comfortable as to who we are, and that we we are that we must protect ourselves from all the assaults that take place, and that our police department is a good place to you know to check check back with, um, give them a call if you need to, uh, and uh, and also watch out for other people too. If you see something happens, call call the cops and 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 provide support and comfort to people who have been hurt in the community who have had, who have been spit on or assaulted or things said to them. I think that we should, you know, be kind to, to people like that. And and um, eventually, I think that these things will wear off after a while. They always take their turns, but it'll be around for a long time. And we need to be very cautious of every step that we take. Sid? Uh, yeah, I want to echo Judge Tang and say safety is paramount. We need to take every possible precaution, especially as some of these racial tensions continue to mount. I think all of us need to be as vigilant as possible. This is definitely not the time uh, to get get into any type of conflict, public conflicts out and about. But what's been most troubling to me is that there are all these like armchair doctors now who think they have a lot of expertise and they're not doctors or medical professionals. So for me, the most important thing is listening to our scientists, listening to those who are medical experts. Um, I, for one, am just so grateful to the leadership we've seen from Governor Newsom and from Mayor London Breed here and um, making sure folks shelter in place. I think that we're going to see some troubling consequences to some of these states that have decided to reopen before really flattening the curve. And Michelle, I love what you asked about the response, because we're actually talking about safety in two ways, the health aspect of safety, and then the mental health and the response to the hate part of the virus that we've been discussing. And you know, from, you know, having a platform in media, Michelle, that, Oftentimes, it can be really brutal, some of the comments and the feedback, because you have folks who are hiding behind their computer screens, ones who sometimes are not the most educated, but like to spew their hatred and their opinions. And I have a multi-pronged approach to this, because early in my career, I didn't quite know what to do. I would probably cry. I would probably go home and stare at my ceiling in bed and lay awake for hours obsessing over a comment that someone made about my appearance. But now it's different. The past few years, I've really not only grown that thick skin, I used to be as bold, but I don't have the time to do it now. Pick up the phone, find that person and give them a call one-on-one. 
I realized that this was a very time-consuming process, but it was surprising because when you call someone who's just called you, uh, I, I don't know, some kind of racial slur, um, it's amazing how quickly they backtrack or they realize, oh my God, there's a person uh, behind the keyboard and behind the screen. The most recent account that I had was just over the weekend. I did a story about a young woman whose bachelorette party was canceled. Her friends held her a surprise party on the street, socially distanced, mind you. I had one viewer who uh, I believe emailed my boss and emailed me as well, sent me a direct message saying that she was going to watch me very carefully over the next few months because she was upset that I was promoting uh, this type of behavior. And I just thought, you know what, this is one of those types of comments that I need to protect myself and not even engage in. Because if you're going to go to the, the extent of following my every move quite scarily, almost like a stalker, you know what, then so be it. You are probably at home and, you know, festering all of these feelings and emoting it on someone else. And I think it, it, it's a delicate balance and each in, in each instance is different in how you handle it. But um, it's been a real test, that's for sure. Um, and then something that we, again, have to do together and, and share, you know, like like what I just went through on, on Saturday. Yeah. Thank you. I think uh, we'll open it up to our audience now for questions for our panelists. And here comes John with the questions. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Michelle. Hello, panelists. Um, now, we have a, a couple people who have asked a question, and, and I'll kind of merge these together because they're, they're kind of related. And that is we've talked about the uh, Trump administration, of course, and, and their demonization of, of China in particular. But they note anti-Asian racism and and slurs and and uh, just kind of demonization has been bipartisan and it's been decades long i remember back in the 80s when you had you know people taking out uh, japanese cars and destroying them because they were so angry about japanese economic success so any comments about kind of the yes donald trump may be doing this right now but he's also going to he's maybe widening a well-trod path Certainly a well-trod path. Um, we have a very dark racial history here in the United States, and um, obviously folks are familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act 1882, banning, specifically targeting Chinese people, banning them from immigrating to the United States in a meaningful way until the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965 certainly got Japanese internment. These things are all part of our history. Um that does not excuse from the fact that we are we have leadership right now that's exacerbating it, that's using um, racial animus as a tool to excuse some of his own inaction. And I think it's not exclusive to the Asian community. We saw a lot of his dog whistles to white supremacists since this administration began from calling folks at these alt-right rallies, very fine people. Um, so I think, again, this is really, really dangerous language, um, despite there being this history. And maybe because we have that history in the United States, we have to be even more careful about it. Okay. Well, as I said earlier, I think a lot of these um, racism stems from the fact that um, China has not enjoyed a very positive presence in the U.S. press. Uh, for the last three years since Trump took office, he started a trade war with China. It gotten worse. 
Now, from the trade war perspective, I don't think it really produced any winners um, from an economic point of view in particular. But in everything else, both sides lost the goodwill, cooperative relationship and peace between the two countries that we used to enjoy were thrown out the window. And then came the pandemic. In the beginning, Trump appeared to be forthright and respectful towards China's effort to, to fight the virus. But then when he was caught off guard, not having made the preparations for our own pandemic, then he returned to his China diatribes and found a convenient target to blame for his own failings. You know, I really shudder to think what's going to happen as we uh, get closer to the presidential campaign. Um, Because seeing some of the ads coming out of Biden's campaign really, you know, concerns me. Because Trump now, I understand and I don't agree with him, but he needed to blame China to deflect from his gross mismanagement of the COVID-19 crisis. But what I don't get is why is Biden also jumping on the same wagon? He could take the high road to blast Trump for his failings and offer a better solution to urge for forging cooperation and demand support and, um, and peace with China. His uh, anti-China rhetoric is already getting backlash from the Asian American community. I'm talking about Biden. My friend, Asia Times opinion writer, George Koo, wrote an opinion piece blasting Biden for inflaming more anti-Asian hate. And another friend of mine, Cecilia Wong at ACLU, who used to be the president of the um, Bar Association of San Francisco, um, San Francisco um, Asian American Bar Association, she tweeted that Joe Biden's fear-mongering is causing violent attacks on Asian Americans. In a way, both the Trump and Biden uh, campaigns are exploiting American public's frustration and stress over the pandemic to win votes by making out China to be our common enemy. And I can only join my friends, George and Celine, that we worry because if we continue to go down this war path with China, then it's not just a Chinese-American issue, but an American issue. The economic war with China is a no-win situation for both countries, and the pandemic cannot be won without both countries working really hard to fight it. China is already, already going back to normalcy. We too will be there but there's so much we can learn from each other even after the pandemic is over. And right now, as we speak, U.S. warships are entering South China Sea hotspot, provoking a standoff with China, even as American citizens are fighting for their lives. Can you imagine if a Chinese warship is sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge now to intimidate us? How would we feel? Even an accidental skirmish in the South Sea could lit up a war with China. In America, I think we have a unique place to urge for peace, and we should do so. A war with China will be calamitous and will affect everyone, not just Chinese Americans. But peace doesn't come easy, and it is a, but it is achievable. I think we should work hard with China with the ultimate goal to forge peace. And I don't think China wanted war too. With 200 years of poverty, domestic strife, and foreign invasions behind them, this is the first extended period of peace that the Chinese people have enjoyed. They wanted peace, and so do we. And we must work with China to defeat this pandemic. And there'll be time later to investigate about the cause and prevent future pandemics. You know, two countries can do better, sharing prosperity and peace, but I, I don't know, you know, if that's going to happen. I'm just so worried about what's going to come down with this presidential campaign and all the rhetorics that it's going about. Yeah. When it comes to politics, I like to remind everyone that we may not be able to share our political views, not just because I'm a member of the media, but maybe you have a workplace that discourages expressing your political viewpoints and who you support. But I think in the way that we respond to it is 
crucial at this time. And I'll just give you a small, quick example. President Trump, there was one photographer who captured his notes on the podium where he had scratched off coronavirus and changed it to China virus on purpose and really called him out. And through that one photo, maybe that one photo would not be able to garner a two-minute story on the news because there's so much else that would be more appropriate. But by sharing that one photo in the avenues that we are able to now, whether it be social media or in some kind of digital roundup for the day, it gets the message across in ways that we have not been able to before. So again, it is making sure that we are on top of the response, even if the response does not seem to be so forthright. Thank you for all of your answers. Another question you've you've kind of already talked about, and this is this is ask, someone asking for practical steps someone should take if they are a victim of of some sort of verbal or physical abuse, or uh, or if they see it happening. You, you've talked about going to the police and reporting it. Uh, I, I think Dion, you you mentioned some of these sites that are tracking these things. Tell people where they can go to do that. Yes, and uh, Judge Julie, I know, and also Sin are very familiar with them, and we can provide a link um, later on because there are multiple organizations that have come together to do the research for it, such as the San Francisco State University Department of Asian American Studies. Um, I also want to mention something else that happened on Monday. There was a news story about an Asian American woman walking along the Great Highway in San Francisco with her two dogs when blatantly and violently she was accosted by a woman saying, go back to your country. Why are you walking here? This woman was upset about social distancing. And when you're on a path, it's hard to maintain necessarily six feet of social distancing. If someone wants a tangible of what to do, just watch that video because you'll see at least a dozen people step in and barricade themselves around the woman to prevent this woman who was very, I don't know if she was out of her mind or, or what the case was, lashing out and spitting on this woman. And it, it was a way for her to feel protected. And she told me later that she felt safe, thank goodness for the people around her. So even though it's so cliche of see something, say something, now we have to do it if we can safely for ourselves more than ever. Yes. I love that story. I hadn't heard that. Um, and talk about being an anti-racist ally. Um, the one that the website that I'm familiar with that's tracking some of these instances, and I think it's really important for us to document um, them and collect as much information as possible, particularly in the absence of any federal task forces. Uh, the one that I'm hearing about is uh, StandAgainstHatred.org, and it's accessible in Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese as well. Um, I think they're also partnering with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law. So that's a great one if, uh, to go to if you yourself have been the victim of attack, an attack or you know of one, um, just to enter it in there for purposes of collecting that data. It's, it really is horrible, though, that, um, that uh, as Asian Americans, that now we're just, you know, our very primary um, protection for ourselves is sort of like torn away, you know. Um, as, as a human being, uh, we can even just go about doing our things that, that we usually do without fear of somebody gouging in the totality of who we are and put us in a spot, you know, for humiliation and, and dishonoring and, and emotional scarring. 
I, I think that we, I, that's why I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about this issue on this program. And I appreciate very much hearing from Sai and Dion and Michelle and, um, and everybody else who are in this program to uh, promote these issues. I think the more we educate the public, um, I think maybe we can prevent at least even um, a, a certain percentage of the incidents, then we're doing a good job. I think education is really important. I wish, wish that more stations can uh, 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 sponsor programs like this one. But I think people also need some practical tips. And uh, I was on the Chinese radio once, and this was in the early days back in January, when the Chinese American community was already sending the, sensing the, the danger, you know, um, with the virus and uh, happening in China and an American's uh, reaction and, um, and the bashing of China that goes along with it. They were sensing the danger to their own personal safety. So when I was on that program, we talked about that and I taught them a phrase. I said, you have to say, um, um, uh, I'm not a virus. You're the virus of ignorance and, and, and racism. So get out of, get out of my sight. Something like that. We had multiple phone calls coming in and that was also a radio talk show asking me to repeat that sentence. And, and so the radio, um, announcer had to type it down, you know, on the, on the, on their, um, I guess, um, uh, blog, you know, so that people can uh, look into it. I think that, the Chinese American community that don't speak the language is especially the more vulnerable uh, group of people. And we should really try to protect them, especially if we see them being hurt or things said to them and they don't know how to respond because they don't have the language. And, and we, we, we need to give them the support. And I hope that the city and county of San Francisco will allocate some, some more resources to help them, especially with the language uh, situation and also the cultural um, responses um, may not be uh, adequate. A lot of Chinese may just drop their head down and then just say, like Sai, you were saying that your parents told you, um, or actually Michelle was saying, parents always say, don't worry about those things, you know, don't don't deal with that and, and just leave that alone and, and it'll go away. And, and that's just not the right response either, you know, because it would encourage people to continue to do that. Uh, a lot of times when people manifest those kind of horrible racist attitudes, um, they're, they're not in the right mind, you know, or they're so angry and frustrated about something, they need to find a scapegoat to release their frustration. And that is not a right way for them too. So we need to have to find a right, you know, a really uh, something more to, to help with the, um, the people who are suffering right now. Um, mm-hmm. And that includes all of us who are Asian, because we, anytime I walk out of my door right now, I walk up the hill, it's possible that, you know, we would see something. The other day I was walking on aquatic park. I was wearing a mask and there were three white men with tattoos, you know, sitting on the bench. And two of them were not doing that, but one was looking at me in a very menacing manner. So they were, he was just like staring right at me to the point where I was frightened. But you know what I did? I looked around my surrounding. I made sure that I was safe, that I there was a, a route of escape. And I know that there were people around. So I. I did with him like a, a staring contest. I've never done that in my life. Because <laughs> he didn't say anything, right? So I looked back right at him and I continued to look back at him until, you know, I, I was turning my head and continued to look until he was the one who put down his head. I don't feel good about that. But I just feel like, okay, you hate me. I don't appreciate that either. You know, so maybe next time you won't 
look at that, look like that at somebody else. Uh, someone uh, wrote, uh, I wish to thank Dion Lim for her powerful San Francisco Chronicle op-ed. The op-ed was heartening because I think most Asian American celebrities would be reluctant to confront racism against Asians. Um, I'm sure you've, you've seen the, uh, the op-ed, I guess, John Cho, the actor, uh, wrote in the Los Angeles Times this week. Uh, and, and uh, the headline was something like, you know, this is showing that what, that belonging is conditional for Asian Americans. Um, do you think there will be more celebrities who do start st- stepping out and, and talking and, and, and tweeting and Facebooking in, in defense of, of Asian Americans? Dion? Yeah, first of all, I'm so thankful for that comment. I appreciate the feedback very much. Um, you know what? I hope so because it's challenging because you don't want to alienate your audience. And that was one of the fears that I had and the apprehensions I had prior to getting approval for this. I didn't even know if my station would be behind it, but I asked my general manager kind of uh, nervously, and I said, hey, is it okay if I do this? Because again, having an opinion and a strong one at that and sharing the story so rawly uh, and so candidly is not only scary, but there might be people in the audience who don't agree with it. And you're taking a risk. And right now, it's that risk-taking that gets people's eyeballs paying attention. And, you know, we mentioned, um, I know uh, Judge Julie mentioned, uh, or maybe it was uh, uh, Sins of the uh, Andrew Gang op-ed. And here's how I feel about that, too. Yes, you may not agree with it. We may not agree with it. Who knows may not agree with it. But it got people talking. And right now, that's what we need more than ever. That concludes our program. We've uh, finished up the entire hour. I can't believe it. I think we can go another hour uh, having this conversation. I want to thank all three of our panelists for being here with us on a Friday afternoon. And we'll make sure that we put up the slide with the links for uh, resources that our panelists have put together for our audience. And I want to thank our audience for being here with us. And please share the content after we post it. It's important that we share our thoughts and we have an open mind and an open heart. And uh, thank you for joining me, the Michelle Miao Show program here at the Commonwealth Club. And please, 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 if you can, support the work of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, what we do here is over 117. 117 years of history, of uh, open conversations, of including thought leaders, and the mission for the truth. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us.